0: It's our hope that you'll grab one of these, uh, a copy of this book <clears throat> provided by the church. And maybe you could uh, discuss it with others in your care group. Maybe you could uh, plan to, to read it over the course of the next month and then meet up with another church member to discuss it. But So our, our goal in this is that we would be talking about these things, how the Bible addresses issues of race and ethnicity and division. And really that's the topic of our, our message this morning as well. Many uh, the the eve of being the eve of Martin Luther King Day, many churches uh, take this Sunday as an opportunity to talk about uh, racial reconciliation and race, racial harmony, providing a biblical uh, understanding of what God would have for His people. And then next week, many churches spend talking about the sanctity of human life. And so I thought it would be helpful for us to consider those things as well, to think about uh, what what does the Bible teach us about these things, about racial reconciliation? What does the Bible teach us about the value and sanctity of human life? So we'll be discussing those things this week and next week, and then the following week, the last Sunday of January, we'll begin uh, going back through our uh, the study we were previously in before Christmas in 1 Corinthians. And so we'll pick back up at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 on that last Sunday. But I want to start with this, uh, with this question What is it that will heal our racial divisions within our country? What is it that will heal our racial divisions within America? And we have made real progress since the time of slavery and the civil rights era. There's no doubt about that. We have made progress. But it still seems like we have so far to go. Uh, With recent events over the last couple of years especially, it seems things have gotten worse. It seems that way. But what is the solution? What will bring an end to racism and racial division? Well, first in talking about this, I want you to know that I'm using this term race in a particular way. I don't use it to mean that there are actually different races of people, right? We understand from a biblical point of view that there is one race, uh, the human family, which comes from one family. Uh, There's this one race which God has caused to develop from the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. So the term race itself is a sort of social construct meant, I think, to cause us to focus in on, in, in a divisive sort of way, the differences between one another and superiority of one group over another people. And so it would probably be more appropriate to talk about ethnic divisions or cultural divisions. But regardless of the terms we use, we recognize there is division, right? We recognize there is a significant Division among people groups in America. And it occurs perhaps most prominently uh, in our history at least between people who are white and people who are black. But it also has taken place more recently between Americans and Mexicans or between Americans and other immigrants, perhaps uh, Muslims, perhaps Muslim immigrants. But how are we to deal with these divisions? How are we to think about them? Well, some say we can help bridge the gap with education. If we can educate one another about different cultures and religions, then we will have respect for one another and we'll be able to tolerate one another better. And I do think that education is helpful. I think it would do a lot to help the divisions in America. Others say we need a certain kind of division. We need a displacement. And I've talked about this before. We need not only to learn about other cultures, we need to uh, immerse ourselves into or expose ourselves to the community of other communities. Or we need to befriend someone who is a Muslim or befriend someone who is uh, Latino or uh, black or of a different ethnicity or culture. If we actually have relationships, relationships with people who are different from us, then we will be able to have a more nuanced view of who they are when talking about a particular group of people. Uh, Perhaps someone will argue what we actually need to do, and I have heard this viewpoint, we need to stop talking about racism. That's why it's so bad, they say, because we talk about it so much. And while that might seem to work for a brief period of time, I think it is as futile as filling potholes with, with dirt. You are... Hovering over the problem, but you're not actually addressing what's underneath, what's at the root of the problem. Well, what do we need then? What, what will be a definitive help to us? What, what will give us a biblical understanding of these divisions and how to bridge the gap and how to reconcile people to one another? I think what we need ultimately is biblical teaching concerning, one, the nature of man as created by God but then also the nature of man as redeemed by God. So in creation, who we are in creation and who we are in redemption. So it would go a long ways if people had a biblical understanding of what is called the Imago Dei or the image of God, what it means that we are created in the image of God, that every human, no matter what color, no matter what culture, no matter what age or nationality, every human has been made to reflect at least in some measure, the glory and character of God. And with this understanding, we could make a lot of progress in overcoming racism in America. But it really takes even more than that also. It takes more than simply understanding that we are all created in the image of God. It also takes understanding about who we are as redeemed humans. We who are in Christ what is our identity in Christ, having been redeemed by His blood? Ultimately, only the light of the gospel can drive out the darkness of racism. And so that will be our focus this morning. So we'll begin by looking at this passage of Scripture, Galatians 3, verses 23 to 29. So turn there in, in your Bibles and follow along as I read that passage. Galatians 3, 23 to 29. There, Paul says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Dear Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would nourish us by it, that you would help us to have greater faith in Christ. We pray that you would reveal to us any sin that we have against uh, our brothers and sisters or against one another or against you that we might repent and that we might believe in You, that we might trust in You and walk according to Your ways. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now the main point of this text is that justification comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. And those who are justified are now Abraham's offspring, children of God and heirs according to the promise. So this is actually an important theme of the entire letter to the Galatians. Look back at chapter 1, verse 16. Where Paul says, I am astonished that you have so quickly deserted him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. This is, he, he rails on the Galatians because they're turning away from this gospel of grace. Uh, there were some who were troubling the Galatians. They were called Judaizers and they were attempting to bring Gentile Christians into conformity with the tradition and culture of the Jewish Christians. The conformity with Moses. Their teaching was, yes, you you do need Jesus to be saved, but you also have to do these other things according to the law of Moses if you really want to be in God's good graces. In other words, it was kind of a grace plus theology. It was grace plus works. It was Jesus plus uh, obeying the, the laws of Moses and the culture of Moses. So Paul lays out his argument. At the end of chapter 1, he shows how the gospel came to him when he was a staunch Pharisee. But God set him apart before he was born and called him by his grace. So he shows how he was saved by grace. God revealed his son to Paul and he was saved by grace. And the leaders of the church confirmed the legitimacy of his testimony. And then look at chapter 3. Paul says, who has put you under a spell? Who has bewitched you? It's kind of like uh, you've seen on TV those people who are supposedly hypnotized and they you know, walk around like uh, chickens clucking and, or they make them do weird and crazy things by being hypnotized. Paul's saying, it's like you've been hypnotized. You've been put under a spell that you would turn away from the gospel of grace. He says, you received the Spirit by hearing with faith, And now you're going to try to perfect yourselves by works of the law? It doesn't even make sense. He says, no, you should pursue sanctification by the Spirit the same way you receive justification. In fact, Paul says, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So we must rely upon God's grace to us in Christ if we are to be saved. It is by grace through faith in Jesus that we are saved. And so with that context that context that background now we come to our text and i just want you to notice a few things about the main thrust of these verses paul says before faith came we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed so then the law was our guardian until christ came in order that we might be justified by faith in other words The law itself is not bad. We sometimes have a tendency to think about law is bad and grace is good. But this is not what the scripture teaches. Rather, the law is a good gift from God, but it has a particular use. It only becomes bad when you abuse the way God intended it to be used. So the law is actually a good gift from God. It has a particular purpose. Uh, By saying you must keep the law of Moses, the Judaizers were abusing the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is not to give life. We might think of it in that way often. If we can keep the law well enough, if we can be good enough, then we'll have true life. Then God will truly be pleased with us. Instead, however, the law has a different purpose. And one of these purposes is it is meant to kill us. The law is meant to kill us. It actually shows us that we cannot abide by the law. It shows us our sin. It shows that we need someone to keep the law for us and that we need a Savior to rescue us. So the law is like a mirror. We hold it up to ourselves, and it shows us the dirt and filthiness of sin, but it cannot clean us up. Have you ever had one of those experiences where you spend a night at at dinner, maybe uh, dinner and a movie, And you come home and you look in the mirror and you have this big green piece of spinach in your teeth. And you're like, I've been going out all night long with this spinach in my teeth and nobody's told me how embarrassing that is. It's the mirror that shows you uh, the dirtiness in your mouth. It's the mirror that shows you what was wrong with you the whole time. But the mirror can't clean you up. So do you ever stand in, the, in front of the mirror and you see a blemish or something and you get closer to look at it to see uh, how you can clean it up, but you find it's a smudge of chocolate uh, from one of those cookies that you ate? What do you do? You don't, you don't put your face further onto the mirror and start rubbing your face on the mirror to clean it up. The mirror can't clean you up. It simply shows you that you're dirty and you need to be made clean. And the law can't clean you up either. It merely is able to show you your need of being cleaned up. It shows you how sinful you are. And it shows you that you need to be made clean. It shows you that you need a savior. And so it is good for us to reflect upon the law of God. One of the practices of Martin Luther was to dwell upon the Ten Commandments. To dwell upon the Ten Commandments. To to examine his own heart. To examine his own life. In light of the law of God. And this is a good practice to us. Because if we fail to think about the law. We will fail to remember that we are desperate sinners in need of a savior. Spend time reflecting upon the law of God. Because in reflecting upon the law of God. You will be driven to Christ. You'll be driven to Christ. And he has grace for you. Reminded that you need a savior. The law reminds us of our sin, drives us to despair, and then drives us to Christ. And then having come to Christ, the law maps out for us, having been justified by Christ, it maps out for us what the righteous life looks like. It shows us what is pleasing to God and how we ought to live. So Paul says you're no longer under this guardian because you've been brought to Christ. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. It's not through the law. That you became sons and daughters, it's through faith in Christ that you have become Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. And this applies, Paul says, to all who have been baptized into Christ. This refers to the sign of baptism, the outward sign of the inward reality. When you were put into Christ, you put on Christ. And therefore, you are Abraham's sons and daughters by faith. You are children of God. You are heirs of the promise. And it's all by God's grace to us in Christ Jesus through faith. So you're wondering about the title and topic of our sermon today. What does this have to do with racial harmony? I thought you were talking about that. What truth does this passage, largely about justification by faith, give us about racial harmony and how we should view our relationships with people who seem different from us? Well, this is the foundation. This is where... Uh, racial re- reconciliation, true reconciliation between people must begin if it's not going to fail and falter. So let me transition to the second part of this message. And we'll talk about some implications from this text. So this is, uh, it's not mainly about racial harmony and reconciliation. It's mainly about justification by faith in Christ. But there are staggering implications for us when it comes to reconciling between person and person between racial reconciliation and ethnicity. So let me give you five implications concerning these things. Five implications concerning racial reconciliation. The first implication is this Christ is our supreme identifying characteristic. Those who have those of us who have come to Christ, are in Christ, those of us who are Christians, your supreme identifying characteristic is Christ. So this is at the forefront of who we are. It's the top of the list concerning our identity. I am a Christian. I am in Christ. And it actually encompasses everything that we are. In other words, your primary characteristic is no longer anything having to do with this world. What you're known for you're identified as being is now Christ. And all the other things take their shape in relation to your Christhood. All throughout my school years, one of the biggest highlights was getting a yearbook. Do you remember that? You would get your yearbook and you'd flip through looking at all the pictures. You'd see, you'd see not only like your square picture, but you'd also look at the other pictures of like school events and see if you were in any of those. And you'd take it around to everybody and you'd, you'd get people to sign it. And uh, it would say usually something like, stay cool, have a great summer, you know, something uh, pretty uh, standard. Or some people would just write their names. Well, there were also these senior superlatives. So some of the seniors would get labeled as most likely to succeed or best dressed or best, best athlete or class clown. Do you remember that? Were some of you named in those yearbooks? Well, that's what they were known for. This was what they were known for by their class. Their class voted, and this is who they were. This was their identity as, as a high school student. Well, what Paul is saying is now that you have come to Christ, all of these other designations about who you are, they now take a back seat because you are in Christ. This is who you are known to be. This is your identity. You're in Christ. So what Paul is getting at is our unity in Christ. Christ. It's not that you, uh, your primary characteristic now is not that you are male or female, not that you're white, black, or brown, not that you have certain cultural background or preferences, not your music, not your clothing, not your style, not your social class, not your politics. See, people find their identity in all of these things. This is, and this is what we sometimes make our identities about if we're not careful. I know especially those of you who are in school, in high school, it's so tempting for you. This was me in high school. To make your identity about something other people would would like about you and would respect about you, rather than finding your identity in Christ. But this is your identity now. Those of us who are in Christ now have an entirely different identity. People are bound together by certain affinities or styles or music, or politics, but not Christians. We, Paul says, we are one in Christ. He is our unity. He's what brings us together, even if we are different in a variety of ways. So, this means you have more in common with other sons and daughters of God than you do with those who aren't sons and daughters of God. For instance, if you have a family member who is not a Christian, you ultimately have less basis for unity with them than you do with someone who is totally different from you, but they are a Christian. They're a son or daughter of God. Or to put it another way, you have more basis for unity with a Chinese Christian who doesn't speak any English or know any of the customs you have. You have more basis for unity with that brother or sister in Christ than you do with someone who isn't a Christian yet shares all the same cultural marks that you do. You see how this changes our view of people? This is radical. This this changes. We, We don't see people simply according to the flesh anymore. We see them according to who they are spiritually. And this is the unity that the gospel brings. And you can already probably begin seeing how the gospel provides a unity that our society cannot give. Christ brings people together. But only in him and around him. Second implication. Our earthly characteristics are not primary, but they are not erased in the gospel. Our earthly characteristics are not primary. Christ is, right? But they are not erased in the gospel. <clears throat> when Paul says there is no male or female, he's not, he's, no longer, he's not saying we should no longer make distinctions between men and women. He's not saying they're just the same now, just uh, unisex. He's not saying we're all genderless. And this is obvious since in other letters he gives instructions for men and husbands. And he gives instructions for women and wives. It follows then that these other characteristics aren't a race either. If you are in Christ, you are still a male or you are still a female. You are still a Jew or a Gentile. In other words, you don't lose automatically your cultural background. You are still rich or you are still poor. You don't automatically lose the fact uh, of your social or economic status. It doesn't vanish into thin air. In Paul's day, you are either still a slave or you are free. Your social status doesn't simply get erased. And we could take it further. You're still a Republican or a Democrat or independent. You're still black or white or brown. All these earthly characteristics are not our primary identity, but they are not erased in the gospel. In fact, not only are they not erased, I would contend they exist for a purpose. They exist for the glory of God. In other words, you are a woman for the glory of God. Or you are a man for the glory of God. You are white or black or brown or rich or poor for the glory of God. That you might testify to the greatness and goodness of God in your situation and in your personhood someone might say, well, I don't see colors. I don't see cultures. I just treat everyone the same. And there's a good desire in that. I recognize that desire is good because they don't want to treat someone differently based on their skin color or their ethnicity or cultural background. We should uh, see one another, firstly, as persons made in the image of God who reflect something of His glory. But that's exactly where being colorblind fails. If a person is made in the image of God, then to ignore some part of them, including their skin color, to ignore some part of them is to fail to see them as how they were created for the glory of God. It's to ignore a part of who they are. Imagine walking into a field of a million flowers. But to your surprise, you only see them in monochrome. You only see them in grayscale. You see some differences, but it's all kind of grayish. That would be weird. It would be an interesting sight to see, wouldn't it? But we would all agree, I think, that it would be so much be- more beautiful if we saw all the flowers and their array and variety of colors and shapes and sizes and form. You see, colorblindness ultimately is not a virtue, it's a deficiency. Colorblindness is better than racism. It's better than seeing the differences and hating those differences. But it falls short also of God's intention that we would see the differences and rejoice. That we would see the differences with which God has created and rejoice in the great creativity of our great God. And even more beautiful than the diversity of God's good creation in the world is God's diverse people gathering together in unity under the banner of Christ. Think about how we might apply this in our own midst. Or think about your own personal life. Have you been guilty of disliking the differences that you experience or, or that you see? Maybe in our own church. Maybe different personalities or cultures. Cultures or preferences. And what would it begin for you to begin seeing differences and enjoying them for the glory of God? Seeing how they bring more glory to God. And what would it look like to be unified in the midst of those differences? God gets glory from this. So let's rejoice in the differences we experience, even in our own midst. Let's rejoice in the creativity of God in these distinctions third implication these distinctions do not serve as spiritual advantages before god i won't really spend much time on this but just to say a man has no spiritual advantage over a woman when it comes to uh, justification before god nor does a rich man have an advantage over a poor man nor a religious outwardly religious man over a non-religious man Now, of course, some have more access to the gospel. Some have more exposure to spiritual things. But no one has a leg up. Rather, every person takes the same path to get to God, and that is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. All must come to God through Christ in repentance and faith. And so what does this mean for us, that these distinctions do not serve as spiritual advantages before God? Well, it means in our own personal evangelism and church outreach, Let us not privilege one person over another. Let us not uh, go to someone and think, well, I can't share the gospel with them or I can't invite them to church because they wouldn't really fit in. They wouldn't fit in with who we are as a church. Get rid of that thought. Spread the gospel. Share the gospel with anyone and everyone. They need Jesus Christ. They need to hear of a Savior. They need to be welcomed into a family and loved like each one of us do. Don't withhold the gospel because someone looks different than you or you fear they wouldn't fit in or you're afraid because they look rough to you or because they, I don't know, whatever your prejudice might be, your prejudice might be the other way towards those who are well-refined and high class. Everyone needs the gospel and there is only one way to be saved through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. We need to be excelling in this gift of evangelism and inviting people to church. Fourth implication, these distinctions do not serve as spiritual barriers among the people of God. So they do not serve as spiritual advantages before God, and neither do they serve as spiritual barriers among the people of God. We've talked about this some, but I think it deserves a little more explanation. So in verse 28, Paul chooses the biggest divisions he could think of in the world. In fact, as a young Jewish man before his conversion he probably would have learned and regularly prayed a common Jewish prayer. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a slave. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. Gentiles, slaves, and women were seen as inferior. So there were social and spiritual barriers between these people. It kept them From relating to one another, from fellowshipping with one another, it kept them from being a part of the same community. And, yep, a big part of Paul's aim here in Galatians 3 is to show how Christ has broken down these walls of hostility. Not only between God and people, but between brothers and sisters in Christ, even though they're radically different from one another. Even if the culture around them saw people as inferior, they were welcomed into the community of faith. And notice how Paul's actions line up with his words here. We see what difference this makes practically. In Galatians 2, what do we read of? Paul's account of Peter's behavior. Peter was acting hypocritically. Do you remember what happened there? He was acting like the gospel hadn't broken down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. You could say he was actually building a wall back up by his behavior. And how did Paul respond? He opposed him to his face. Verse 11. He opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And look at verse 14 of chapter 3. Paul saw, Paul saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So Paul called them out in front of everybody. I think it's chapter 2. That's what I meant to say. Paul calls him out in front of everyone. Peter, Peter was... He said that the walls of separation were broken down, but his actions spoke louder than his words. His actions said that the Gentiles ought to assimilate themselves and their culture to the Jewish culture. He was saying they needed to change. They needed to assimilate. And so let me give you a couple of implications from this implication. There, here's an implication, a couple implications from this. First, Paul gives us an example here of calling one another out on these issues. Calling out other believers when, when their lives are not in step with the gospel, particularly here as they are treating someone differently because of their own culture or background or ethnicity. In Peter's case, it was one of culture and ethnic superiority, and Paul called him out. And we must do the same in instances of treating someone differently because of these things, or economic status or gender. And this is a case especially in the household of faith. But I think it goes for everyone as well. We Christians ought to be those who stand up for those who are demeaned and oppressed. If someone distastefully jokes about immigrants or Mexicans or Muslims, we must call them out. We must not let it stand. We must stand up for those who are oppressed. Men, if someone makes a demeaning remark about women we should play no part in it. We shouldn't stand back passively and laugh or ignore it. We should stand up and speak up. We should call them out. If someone says something against the poor, we should call them out. That's the first implication. Here's the second. God broke down these barriers, but what practical difference does it make in our own fellowship or in our own lives if we never cross those barriers? We must take initiative to step over the rubble of the dividing wall that has been broken down by Christ. So ask yourself, are there barriers I am erecting that keep me from fellowshipping with people who are unlike me? We should ask ourselves, are there barriers that we present in our own church that keep others from gathering with us where they don't feel unwelcomed? Are there barriers that we as a church are erecting that keep our homogeneity unnecessarily intact. In other words, being all the same culturally or with our preferences. Are there barriers of preference in my own heart? And there will be objections that arise in our minds. Uh, There are too many differences in worship style for us to be with people who are too unlike us. And preaching styles. There are too many different styles of preaching for us to really worship together, for us to be together in a church. But if, you're, if you think about it, isn't this true of who even we are as a church? Don't we have different tastes in musical style? We probably have different tastes or preferences when it comes uh, to preaching, at least to some extent, and yet we're still, still here. We're still united together in Christ. We still somehow make it work. You give a little and you, you take a little. You lay down your rights and your preferences for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And really, it's, a, it's a, even a more beautiful thing than if we all simply agreed on all the, the individual preferences and styles. And isn't this the very example Christ has set for us in his life and death for us? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What did Jesus do? who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped, clung to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, there's there's at least some sense in which we must decide that Having a diverse array of people in our fellowship, in our congregation, is more important than my individual preferences. We have to decide my brothers and sisters in Christ are more important than my simple desires. We have to decide that for one another. We might be tempted to dislike someone else's preference or style, and yet we can lay down our own rights and privileges for the sake of others, just as Christ did for us. Fifth implication. We are all heirs of God's promise to Abraham. Therefore, we are brothers and sisters. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. We are children of Abraham and children of God. And this is because of Christ. We, because we belong to Christ, we belong to God. But we are in this interim period in which the already and the not yet overlap. We are already sons and daughters of God, and yet we are still waiting for the full consummation of God's reign. We are still waiting for our inheritance. But we get a picture of what it will be like when Jesus returns. We, we get a picture of what heaven will be like as God desires it. What heaven will be like when all God's sons and all God's daughters worship Him in His perfect presence we get that glimpse in several places in scripture but one of those is in revelation 7 9 to 10 turn there in your bibles revelation 7 9 to 10 revelation 7 9 to 10 john says after this i looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And this is a picture of God's people, God's diverse people worshiping together around his throne. And we should think, isn't there at least a sense in which we ought to, to strive for this? Isn't there at least a sense in which we ought to strive for this? But you say, but that's in heaven. That will never happen here on earth. It'll never happen. We'll just have to wait until Christ's kingdom comes in full before that will be a reality. And to that I would reply, yes, that is true. It, it won't be a perfect reality until heaven. And yet we also pray, do we not let your kingdom come Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do we not pray and work and strive for God's will to be done here on the earth, here and now? For instance, we will never be fully sanctified in this life. You will always have sin. You will always struggle with sin until the day you die. You will always fail. Not always. You will fail until the day you die. You will never be perfectly satisfied in this life until you breathe your last breath. We will never reach every person with the gospel. And yet we pray and we work and we strive for sanctification. We want to be holy. We want to please the Lord in our lives. We want to be like Christ. We strive for this. We pray for this. And we want to reach people with the gospel. We want to tell others about Jesus. Even though we know we will never reach everyone, we send people to foreign countries that they might preach the gospel to those who have never heard. We strive in evangelism, and we do so because God's purposes for the future drive our pursuits in the here and now. His purposes, His ends, His purposes in the future drive our pursuits in the here and now. So let us pray and let us work and let us strive that in some sense we might begin to enjoy the type of unity and diversity that we see in the kingdom come. It's not simply enough for us to say everyone is welcome. We need to welcome others into our homes, into our lives. We must be a welcoming people. And really, on a practical basis... Not every church is going to look like that kingdom that we see in the Revelation. You know, think about some uh, churches in the Midwest. Some populations in the Midwest are 95%, 98% Caucasian. Now, how are you going to have a diverse church in that area? Your church is going to simply reflect, hopefully, the community you're in. And so that would be a reasonable goal for us, that we would spread the gospel, we would share the gospel with those in our neighborhoods and our communities, that we might reflect in some sense our community, that God would be bringing to us rich and poor, that God would be bringing to us people from every sort of background, every sort of walk of life, that God would be saving sinners as we faithfully proclaim the gospel. Let's pray and work and strive that God would be glorified in how we think about these things and how we act. Let's pray together.